Welcome to the inaugural edition of the Chop Shop podcast with Tim Blair, Simon Collins and myself, Nick Cater, coming to you from Australia, Sydney, Australia, and Simon, uh, Tim's on the Central Coast. A bit of a surprise for us all, I think, about five minutes before we started this recording, we were going to call this podcast something different, and then Tim came up with his brilliant idea of Chop Shop, and we all jumped at it. So Chop Shop it is. But we might just talk about the previous title, Tim, because that was your suggestion as well, and, and just listen to the man who inspired it. You're a lion dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're not. A Biden-inspired name, the Pony Soldiers. Uh, tell me, what's the significance of that? That's a tough call, but it's one of the stupider things that Joe Biden said. He um, said that during... Um, during campaigning last year, he took a question from a young woman in the audience, uh, didn't like the tone of it, and tried to joke his way out of it by calling her a lying dog-faced pony soldier. And this created some amusement in the press because they didn't know the origin of this uh, of this phrase. And uh, Biden's office claimed that it was uh, it's a line that he'd previously used, and that it's from a John Wayne movie. But they can't identify which John Wayne movie. There's, there's a few to pick from. They sent out a posse to look for it and they came back empty-handed. I think the closest they got was an old Tyrone Power movie called Pony Soldiers. But it, that, that phrase, though, has never turned up. And, uh, I love you know, it. There's some unusual movies it. playing in Joe it. Biden's head. It's shorty. <laughs> Simon, uh, you, we, you, I think he talked us round to Pony Soldier and then came up with a better, a better title. Uh, what were your thoughts? Well, you know, I mean, I'm a pom. So, you know, when I first heard, uh, when I heard that, that Biden clip originally, I thought, you know, my original, I automatically went to my one of the great gurus in life that I always go to with times of trouble, Arthur Daly from Minder. And, um, you know, pony, him, he would use pony as an adjective and he would say not very good. Pony means not very good. Yeah, pony sold you, you know, but. The dog face is what threw me. So if we could, you know, if we were going to be, if we were going to be pony uh, pony soldiers, would we be lying dog face pony soldiers? Would we be dog face pony soldiers, or are we just pony soldiers? No, it's a hard one. The trouble with the pony is it throws up so many illusions. So it, it, it could sort of send people's minds off in the wrong direction. There is um... pony tails. There's pony tails. it's in Victoria, isn't it? Isn't it a pony? Is it really? Is it really? There used to be a pub near Melbourne University where you'd order a pot and they'd give you a pony and because you're a stupid university student you'd never complain because you just assumed because it was the only pub you'd ever been to in your life. It would notoriously underserve uh, the university <laughs> cohort. It was probably a good idea because an evening of beers uh, for a student followed by a good Indian meal is often followed by a session riding the porcelain pony, of course. <laughs> that can happen. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> It's also one of the reasons why that particular corner outside Melbourne University that, that that pub is on, I think it was the first intersection in Melbourne where it had all-way red lights. The, the, our brainiest uh, kids couldn't be trusted to negotiate a simple crosswalk. OK, well, one, one last... Let's just... One last chance. You're dog-faced Tony Shaw. You said you were, you Thumbs down from the crew. We're chop shop. Chop shop it is. Uh, we, we, at some point, we'll have to start this podcast, but... Uh, I think you should. I think you should for our for the for, for for what I'm sure will be our enormous overseas contingent in the audience. You should give some kind of background to chop shop as an Australian expression. Tim, over to you. Absolutely, a chop shop in the Australian vernacular 
uh, refers to a garage that specialises in rebirthing cars. So let's say you've got a couple of, uh, of damaged or written off vehicles and you illegally piece these vehicles together to create a new, you know, Frankenstein car. You use uh, the ID plates from one car to, um, to uh, give this vehicle a veneer of uh, legitimacy and then you sell it to some unsuspecting idiot. And uh, a little newspaper in Melbourne, and at one point uh, we asked this copy kid, who, even though he was only on about a week, always had nice cars. And uh, one weekend, uh, one of my colleagues went to the office to retrieve uh, some files or something. He went there at night, and he, it was very unusual. The garage of the newspaper had, a, had light around inside the garage. When he opened it, there was... With some of his mates. Rebirthing car. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was running. He was running a chop shop, everybody. So that's where the name comes from. But it, it can also apply, of course. I think, I think I've been to a, a cafe or a restaurant in Dallas called the Chop Shop. And it, you don't, they don't see any pieces of car. It's, it's chops. So... Chop. I like it. It's got a sort of Chinese feel to it too, hasn't it? Um, you, you might have seen in the week, actually, I should be careful about this because um, th- there is a, um, a, a, a brand of fertiliser, I think, marketed in South Australia called Hu Flung Dung. Uh, and uh, there's been a big protest this week. It was in the advertiser. Um, I saw the headline in the advertiser and I thought, I'm going to get a call from Leon Biner at 5AA every time there's a bit of PC madness. He calls me up to sort of rant about it. So yeah, sure enough, they want to they want to ban who flung dung on the basis it's racist. But you'd have to be sort of knowledgeable of a sort of forty year old schoolyard joke to even realise what well, the significance of and it also, was. And also, you know, that's a, it's a great Australian South Australian tradition of you know, you know appropriating uh, well, basically references to um, to excreta uh, for commercial purposes. That there's Adelaide Zoo was the first one in the world to no Adelaide Zoo was the first one to actually find a market for their their waste with uh, that product called Zupu. You know they sold they sold uh, elephant droppings as uh, very good. We all we all we all benefit. So we all, well, there's we a, a notorious a notorious other racial incident in Adelaide occurred, I think, in the early '80s, and you can find this on YouTube. Um, their local edition, I think, of a current affair, found an ad in the Adelaide Advertiser that said, um, "You know, house for sale, no Asians." So the reporter went out there to speak to this guy, like, hey, you know, "What the hell is going on?" And he found this this vendor, and he said, and the, the, the interviewer said, "What's your problem with Asians?" And he goes, oh, "I just don't like them. They come over here, you know, they boss you around, you know, they 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 they, they want money." I don't like them. And the guy said, well, you can't say that. You can't say you're not selling to Asians. He goes, why not? It's my house. I'll say whatever I damn well want. I'm not having them on the property. And the guy's like, oh, this is just disgusting. He goes, well, yeah, look at it from my point of view. They put up their signs. They want a commission. And it, the penny's eventually dropping. He'd actually said to the copy taker of the newspaper, no agents. <laughs> no agents. That's entirely legitimate as a... As a and it ran in the paper as no Asians. Fair enough, he's selling the joint. He's cool. That, 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 that reminds me of, uh, of, of, of uh, a mate of mine who was a British mate of mine who was working in an advertising agency in, in Tokyo. He, and he, 
they they flew out the a young young smart young uh, advertising uh, account director from London to work on the one of their big accounts there, and he'd been in the office about two weeks when my 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 mate who was the boss of the agency had a, a deputation from the local uh, staff members came to him very very respectfully and politely said we can't work with this young guy and they and he said what, what do you mean he's a nice bloke he's smart and he goes he's 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 a racist and he, and he said that every morning he comes in and he says he calls us japs he calls us japs and we don't like it and it's not it's it's not nice and the guy said well absolutely that's disgraceful so he pulled the young guy into the office and he said look there's been a complaint you're coming in it turns out he's getting the walk, getting into the lift every morning and seeing a couple of them and saying, "Morning, chaps." <laughs> well, look over to the news, to the news of the week. Enough of this banter, chaps, chaps. Uh, uh, the um, the zero COVID holdouts, the zero COVID holdouts. Anastasia Palaszczuk, Premier of Queensland, and Mark McGowan, Premier of WA, have kept their borders firmly closed. Uh, but a bit of problems for both of them, Palaszczuk buckled in her attempt to keep Delta south of the border by admitting some football players uh, to the uh, to to the state uh, that dangerous thing she's clearly not aware of the science around footballers and footballs uh, this is a Nicholas Spurier the chief health officer of South Australia who seems to get this sort of thing whenever you touch an object and in this case this is an object touched by I don't know how many very sweaty men on a football field sanitise your hands afterwards. And that's advice I would give pre or post COVID. <laughs> she seems to know what she's talking about. Um, how badly is Anastasia um, bungled? Anybody? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I like Anastasia's performance in Parliament this week when she was yelling and screaming about, you know, won't someone please think about the children? And, you know, the terrible threat represented to the zero to 12-year-olds in Queensland that they'd all be erased if uh, COVID were to be unleashed in her sunny state. Uh, now, not a single child in that age bracket has died from COVID in Australia since this all began, you know. She's calling for more research on this. Well, we've got 18 months of it, mate. We've got 18 months of research showing that there's no particular danger to children. So why she's... It's like, it's like she's looking for excuses to maintain shutdowns and lockdowns. There are some, there are some fundamental you know, truths about this which they don't seem to want to look at, which is that, you know, for example, uh, there is not... According to the New York Times, by the way, the New York Times was, uh, you know, was uh, one of the first you know, lefty publications to jump on board with all the extreme responses to COVID. They they published a piece last week admitting it was a kind of a correction piece. There's not yet been a single uh, example of COVID being trans transmitted in an open air setting anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world. So what do we so what do we do? We force people into their houses and make them stay there. Logical. Well, if, if rugby league was being played indoors, uh, Anastasia may have a point, <laughs> but uh, the closest uh, thing we've got to indoors rugby league is uh, is Queensland Parliament. By the looks of it, they're really going for it. <laughs> it's uh, pretty raucous. But like, you're exactly right. Like Simon, if the rules were making sense, we'd be compelled to go outside rather than stay at home. 
Yes. The rules are exactly the opposite. A friend, a friend of mine in, um, lives in Bondi. Some exercise the other day. She was a brisk walk. <laughs> and uh, she happened upon, you know, four their dogs. They didn't have masks on. No exercise. They were approached by a couple of police. And there was an exchange of views, and then an exchange of these guys' pieces of paper. And then they were dispersed. Well, by my friend, and uh, she said, What was that all about? And the guy, ashen faced, the document he's been given. It's a fire. Friends. Each Jeez. of them got hit. Mm. She just watched what about the 20 dog? odd. What about, what about the dog? Yeah. No, 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 for being out, out, masked, uh, potential evil about them. And, or just in the, I think, I think, I mean, just to be serious for a moment, I think that a lot of these fines uh, will go to court, will be contested and will be thrown out. Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I still remember the days when the police were there to inf to um, to uh, to enforce the peace, you know, by cooperation. You know, they would they were there. They were citizens in uniform, policing by consent. They weren't there to be a judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, and yet, that's where we are now. Um, perhaps we should have. Uh... The majority of fines in Victoria, Nick, haven't been paid. They're just not paying. No, why? Why would you? But but you know, while, while we're on the subject of taking your dog for a walk. I just want to bring up something else. A lot of people wouldn't have noticed this. One of the very small uh, sideshow news news stories of the last couple of weeks has been, and, I, and it probably wouldn't have been in Queensland or anywhere else or Victoria, but um, and may not seem important, but it ties into something that's happening at the moment. So in the last week, I I, I don't know about you guys. Well, I think I think I think maybe maybe Nick, you your build your building where you live. Is a strata building, right? Yeah. And I live in the strata building. You own your apartment, your yeah. unit. I don't own mine. I don't know what... You... Tim, I think you live in a house, don't you? I live in a rented house. I'm a proud right. renter. Right. Okay, so does... this story doesn't really apply to you. But what you may not be aware of is that up until this week, um, there's been a law, uh, there's been a blanket ban in New South Wales. You can't have animals in a rented apartment or unit. It's been a blanket ban for decades. Now, I live in one, and of course, one of the things that the, the, the COVID has, has thrown up and lockout, lockdowns is people have started to take a lot more, you know, they're a lot more interested and they value their pets more. Not least because if you've got a dog and you live alone in, in, in lockdown, you're allowed to go for a walk with your dog. So, so pets generally have become more popular. As a result of this, this is absolutely true, in the last week or so, the New South Wales government has now passed, a, passed a, they've repealed the blanket ban on uh, animals in, in, in stratas. So when I moved into my place, I was told I can't have a pet, can't have an animal. As of this week, I can. So I've also been, like most, most Australians, very worried about what's happening in Kabul and everything. And I've wanted to do my bit and and I was all up for saying, listen, I've got a quite a big apartment here. I'm only one guy in it. I could take in an Afghan refugee or whatever, or a family. I can now kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to buy an Afghan hound. 
<laughs> They're big dogs, Simon. Uh, look, uh, we, we, we've got our guest is lining up to, to join us. This is a part in the... I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I know how this is done. This is a bit where I'm supposed to read an ad for some brilliant product or something or, or say, please help us produce more of these podcasts by sending us a donation. But since we can do neither of those things in the first podcast, I might just give another burst of our theme music. Welcome to the Chop Shop Podcast, Joe Nova. Joe Nova is the founder and editor of the Joe Nova blog, which has been running for 13 years. It's had more than three quarters of a million comments, and it is the place to go on all matters relating to climate. Uh, Joe, welcome to Chop Shop. Thank you so much. Joe, uh, we want to talk, we want your advice, really. We've, we've got some polling in on what people think about climate change, what their knowledge of climate change is, and and some of the some of the answers seem to us to be a little bit astray, if I can put it like that. So, we asked people what percentage of the atmosphere was made up of carbon dioxide. We gave them a sliding scale so they could put anything from 0% to 100%. The average result, Joe, came back at 38%. 38% of the atmosphere made up of carbon. Uh, are they anywhere near the mark on that, or is that? Well, I think it's a testament to the power of propaganda. They have so pushed the entire carbon debate into these ridiculous bumper stickers where people think carbon is pollution and they think it's everywhere and they think that the smokestacks coming out of cooling towers, which are mostly not smoke, but <laughs> they think it's full of carbon dioxide. And the estimates are out not just by a factor of, of 20% or 30% or something like that, it's out by a factor of 1,000. So, you know, people have no idea mm. what a tiny trace element CO2 is. And while it is a greenhouse gas and it does absorb infrared, those parts are true, it is not by any means the most important of the greenhouse gases and all of it is dwarfed by water. Well, somewhat alarming, isn't it? We're supposed to be following the science. That's what mm. uh, you're told, and yet... From what you say, people have got very poor knowledge of the science, if there is indeed a singular thing called the science. Oh, and the science makes me... As soon as you say the science, you know that it's the propaganda, not the science, because there is no the science. Science is a, is a, is a process, and it's a, a process of debate and a process of change. As soon as better evidence comes in, you change your mind. So the idea that there is a fixed science is a myth, and it... it it belies the whole idea that this is based on science. So, yes, it's the irony that they call it a science debate and yet so much of what they do is actually about undoing what we learned to science in school and school science has become disappeared. I mean, we're all taught to hate this thing called carbon, which is, you know, the sixth element of the periodic table. <laughs> it's just bizarre. And this idea that we should try and reduce carbon, that really came out in those survey questions. You had some great questions in there. Things like, I mean, the predictable ones is carbon pollution. And, you know, everyone's well trained on the propaganda and 70 or 80% say, yes, it's pollution. Um, and, you know, I don't really want to get into that debate because the definition of pollution is is complicated 
But you can really see how strong the propaganda is when they ask, is carbon naturally in our body? And you know, the idea is, is just people have forgotten the whole idea that carbon, we are carbon life forms. It's the backbone of fat and carbohydrate uh, carbon molecules. And so the idea that carbon might not be naturally in our body, you know, that should be ridiculous. And yet we get uh, in men, 80% said yes. And in, in um, women, 73% said yes. But that tells you that, you know, 20% of men don't think carbon belongs in our body, one in five men. And, and nearly a third of women don't think carbon belongs in our body. I mean, that's quite a scary thing, you know, in terms of what we learnt in year seven, eight, nine and ten in school. So, uh, yeah, and so it follows then, should we try and reduce carbon in our body? Well, <laughs> you know, 30% of men said, well, sure. And 47% of women, nearly one in two women, think we should try and get the carbon out of our body. So um, I invited you on under the pretense that this would be one of those nice, relaxing, uh, friendly uh, podcast interviews, but actually it's not. Uh, On the chop shop, it's more like uh, a court cross-examination. So I'll, uh, I'll hand over now to my learned colleague, Mr. Blair. Hello, Joe. Hello. I'm tempted to play good cop, bad cop here. Where were you on the night of 17th August? Uh, look, please do. <laughs> now, if, we, um, if, the planet, if the planet's at 30% carbon dioxide already, that's, uh, we're one third of the way to the surface of Mars. <laughs> Mars is about 98% mm. from what I understand. So we're nudging it up there, you know, like it's, uh, it's not going to be a pretty future, obviously. Um, but hearing you diss the science is very disappointing because there are so many great scientific facts that obviously these days, once, once some scientific claim is widely established, we must believe it always. So that's why I'm urging you to go back to endorsing phrenology, uh, eugenics, you know, all the, all the great scientific breakthroughs that were just, the science was settled, Joe. Yeah, and, 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 and can I just jump in there and say, as far as the, me and a lot of people are concerned, Jury's still out on Galileo. The jury's still out. <laughs> You're not one of those round earthers, are you, Joe? Come on. Have we? Have we? Have we I haven't. I haven't heard Joe discuss whether the Earth is flat or round. You know, like, come on, Joe. You're on the stand. No, oh, gosh, and you know, who thinks the Earth is round these days? <laughs> I was. I was. I was. I was trying to. Um, I was trying to, I, I, you know, when I'm trying to bring people around to my point of view about things like climate, I, I just invent things. And the other day, I just, I was talking to somebody and I said, listen, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually criticising what you're saying here, Joe. I hope I'm supporting it because I'm, 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 an, I'm a kind of a balance to Blair here. Is that I, I said, look, think of the, think of the atmosphere as Sydney Harbour, right? What we call the air, Sydney Harbour. I said, um, how much do you think of that? You know, I tell you, the CO2 content of, of it is about the same as North Sydney Pool. And, and I said the, the percentage of the component of that that's uh, anthropogenic in its origin is about the same as my kitchen sink. Was that nonsensical or is it about right? Oh, and I haven't done the calculations on the Sydney Harbour and whatnot, but... It, you, just say yes. Just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> leading the witness, leading the witness, uh, call for dismissal. Um, Joe, are you, um, 
The miracle of climate change, Joe, is that unlike just about every other phenomena on in the history of Earth, everything that climate change does is bad. That's is that possible that we can have one phenomenon that actually makes everything worse, no matter which aspect? I think, and more incredibly than that, or, and, and you're right, that is incredible, um, the fact that there are no health benefits from extra CO2, that it doesn't help plants grow, that warming it could not be a good thing for mammals who need to be 37 degrees and warmer than most room temperature around the planet, all that kind of stuff. And the fact that we're made of carbon and therefore carbon is going to be bad for us, it's... Um, Yes, yeah, I mean, that is ridiculous. Uh, we look at all the data that's come in, decades of science, and strangely, the you know, as I said, science keeps correcting itself, but in modern science, all the corrections non-randomly tend towards what the models predict. It's a pretty odd situation there. It's almost like all the satellites are in some kind of conspiracy. You know, the thermometers, the satellites, the pollen, the seashells, the ice cores, all of it, all of it's in a conspiracy to underestimate the importance of carbon dioxide. I mean, what is the bad luck? These guys just really got unlucky. Trying to convince us the world's an alarmist thing and the very instruments that science uses, the scientific process uses, is just they're, they're all against them. Can I say, can I also say, but can I say, look, look, that all may be true, but just to, just to sort of, to present a balanced thing here, you know, climate science is, is, is a huge... I mean, it's, it's, science is too small a word for it. I prefer the word industry. Okay, climate is an industry now. It's created millions of jobs around the world. It's created loads of university degrees, courses. It's created all this stuff. People like you are undermining a new industry here. I mean, you, you know, what you're trying to do is put people out of work. And, you know, all these young people growing up, they're getting qualifications in in, in all these, uh, you know, things that are going to get them jobs with loads of government funding and, 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 and invitations to foreign conferences and things. And you're bringing in boring old things like real facts, real statistics, real data to undermine a growth industry. Is that responsible? You know, for 13 years, I've been saying that we paid to find a crisis and we got what we paid for. So it's a damn good investment, in other words. Well done, Joe. Well, no, no, we never paid anyone to audit the IPCC. We didn't pay any scientists to find that it was actually the sun or it was natural rather than it was CO2. And the whole IPCC was set up to find out how bad CO2 was. I mean, their, their original mission statement was something along those lines. And they quietly changed that, you know, 15 years later and just pretended that that wasn't what they were set up to do all along. And it sounds so innocent, you know, set up to find out how bad CO2 could be. But the problem was because there was no break on it and there were no scientists who were specifically paid to put their reputations and their jobs on finding the opposite, it simply meant there was a vacuum. When it came to criticising the IPCC, the few that did lost their jobs, they got sacked, they got <laughs> exiled, they got called nasty names, you deny, you. And so there was literally no debate, no auditing and pretty soon our very language got changed. You know, we started to talk about carbon pollution instead of, you know, carbon dioxide. And we started to talk about the science. And everything we started to say, our very language was lost. And unfortunately, you know, smart people gave that up. We never fought for accurate language and accurate words. And whenever words can be ambiguous, 
that really benefits people with an ambiguous, deceptive kind of argument, doesn't it? And say, yeah, I'm, I'm quite sad about that. We we should have fought. Joe, 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 coming through, coming through these these statistics to me, this survey that we did is a very strong impression that people are struggling with the concept that carbon is the building block of life. That instead, it's been demonized to such an extent that people think actually that somehow man is creating the carbon uh, quite how i don't know out of nothing and pouring into the atmosphere and it's a bad thing and uh look i mean look, it, 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 i was amazed to see that people think that carbon in food is a bad thing so uh, in tasmania uh you know people are asked if you found that carbon dioxide is in your food or drink would you still consume it well, in Tasmania, 60% of Tasmanians, 6 out of 10 Tasmanians said they wouldn't eat food or drink drink that had carbon in it. Well, I don't know what they're eating, do you? Or drinking because, I mean, can you think of any food that doesn't have carbon? And Table salt. Table salt. Oh, okay. Ta- you could, yep, yeah, table salt. You can eat table salt and table salt and distilled water. And everything else has carbon in, literally everything. You can't even put pepper on your food without so, putting so carbon our, on your food. Our diet, Joe, on the surface of Mars in a few years is table salt and distilled water. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> it is in a, in a zero-carbon economy. And, and some vinegar. You're allowed vinegar as well. That's acetic acid. No carbon there. No, no, sorry, sorry. Acetic acid's got carbon in it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, damn. You've ruined my dinner plans, Joe. Fantastic. Sorry about that. Damn. Presumably there's no choice. and no, no, You don't sit in in one of these restaurants on Mars and, and they say, would you like still or sparkling? It's just spill, still right. That's all you can have. We can have brine. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> delicious mm. salty brine. Where did this come from? Who's at fault here, Joe? Is it just that we've been terrifying people witless over climate change and... <laughs> in an effort to try and instill some action of some sort um, and that we just haven't really focused on actually telling people about the carbon cycle and, and basically photosynthesis and all those things which you, you know, people used to get taught in science at school. Well, that's just it. I think we've spent decades undoing what people were taught, which is destroying the periodic table. All those lessons, the chemistry teachers worked so hard to tell people, it's all gone. It's been destroyed by nightly news on the ABC, SBS, and and even the commercial channels are nearly as guilty. They just keep using the word carbon incorrectly. They keep pushing the propaganda. As you said, everything is bad about carbon Mm. and anyone who disagrees gets exiled. So I think it's that relentless push of one very limited bumper sticker side of the story, half-truths or quarter-truths, and the other side gets completely ignored. And it's really quite sad when you think about it. Having spent those years in high school trying to teach people about photosynthesis, it's just been obliterated. And the history of the world is getting obliterated too, and all of the inconvenient results just gone. Joe, you touched, you've touched on several times um, the march through the institutions, the, um, the way that uh, climate scientists have, uh, have bullied themselves into academia and into senior roles in the media and so on. But in a way, they've kind of avoided that process of, of going through the institutions by inventing their own. They've come up with their own institution, climate science, and, uh, and that then gives them what they think is the right 
if you don't have a climate science degree, you don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, and they'll sort of cut you out of it because you're not an expert. Or even if you do and you say the wrong thing, they'll cancel you anyway. Exactly, yeah. Because climate science presupposes that there is this uh, carbon dioxide lead thing. By the way, um, I think we shouldn't make much much light of the Tasmanian food consumption issue because it's very serious down there. Just just always keep in mind, twice as many mouths, all right? So it's a big deal what they're putting in. <laughs> also, also, gotta be, also, bear in mind that according to another survey, which I was telling Nick about this afternoon, 70% of Tasmanians believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Well, you do remember when one of them, one of them head-butted Tony Abbott a few years ago. And uh, in Tasmania, that's attempted murder. You've got twice as much noggin coming Absolutely. at you in, a, in any kind of street uh, headbutt collision sort of scenario. And, uh, yeah, you can, you can do, a, do a lot of damage with that much <laughs> mass. Look, 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 guys, guys, come on. Look, Tasmania is a big podcast market. Let's not ruin it, okay? Politeness. <laughs> no, no, to, to, be, to be fair to Tasmania, but, but diet, diet, Tasmanian diet is a big thing. Your, your joke about, I know you don't mean it, to, about, about the, the heads, but the, the reason they've got that reputation that, of, of being two-headed is nothing to do with uh, interbreeding. Do you know what it's, it's actually historical provenance is that there was a very low iodine uh, content in food grown in Tasmania. And so they got a lot of, they got a lot of goiters. And they used to, it was, goiters were a big problem in Tasmania. People would have huge goiters on their neck, hence the joke about two heads. I think you'll find that's true. I, I didn't think this conversation was going to take this strange direction, but I like it. Um, to, just to bring our guests back into it briefly, and get away from the subject of uh, thyroid issues or whatever the hell Simon was talking about, but how would you be, Joe? You're an up-and-coming young climate alarmist. You know, you're the next Greta, and you've seen in the past all of these mm. wonderful conferences, and they're always in lovely places, Rio and so on, you know, and you get to hang out with... You know, Al Gore, if, if, that, if that's considered fun by some people. This time around, where's it at? I think the big climate conference is in Glasgow. So, um, you know, you'll come back. It'll be, there'll be people coming back with uh, glassing injuries. You know, it won't be the fun in the sun that uh, Rio was and other sort of places. Well, they have had <laughs> conferences in places like Warsaw too. I mean, yeah, Doha, Cancun, Bali. Cancun's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, Cancun does sound cool. Um, I went to the Bali one. Um, it was an extraordinary Olympic fest. But, you know, the extraordinary thing about this, but people don't realise the size of them. And the one we went to in Bali, I think it only had 12,000 people. There were 12 of us sceptics amongst the 12,000 there. Mm. Yeah, Al Gore was there. Mm. Kevin Rudd was there. Mm, Jesus. Um, and that was 2007. But by, you know, 2009, they were talking 44,000 people in Copenhagen. I mean, and these are not just a three-day, you know, long conference. This is two whole weeks. This is an enormous reward for anyone who believes the, the, the meme and goes along with this sort of Stone Age philosophy. And it's a way of rewarding everyone for being on the bandwagon and they get to do their speech and then there's all these dinners at night and there's, you know, um, big drink-ups and festivals and whatnot and they all feel very important. So it's a great way to keep people on meme and on message and uh, yeah, it's just a two-week-long junket. It's extraordinary. Why did we go for the Olympic Games for Brisbane? We should have gone for the big ones, obviously. We should have got <laughs> 
Well, well, well. Uh, we don't want it. Yeah, we might have podiumed in panic. But, but, but you, you know, be, be, be careful of those junkets in Glasgow, those big dinners and things. This is, this is, this is the country that gave the world the deep fried pizza. This is the country where, where, where people, when the population thinks oat cuisine is porridge. You know, that's, that's the Scots. He just reminded me, Simon, there was a, a, an Australian Greens politician, I think, was posting on Instagram or somewhere from, uh, from uh, some sort of climate thing, I think it was in Paris, might have been Paris. And, uh, and she was very impressed by a meal that she'd, been, that she'd consumed, duck a la orange, which uh, shows you that these people might know a hell of a lot about jumping on bad wagons, but they can't read a damn menu. Joe, we, we, we can't we can't avoid, of course, talking about the the, the scare du jour, uh, which of course is COVID. Uh, it seems to me that that a lot of the learnings by the scaremongers from uh, climate change have been employed when it comes to COVID. We first of all we had those early wild estimations coming out of out of uh, Britain about the number of I think they said one hundred and fifty thousand Australians we're going to die. Uh, well, we never got to anywhere close to that. And uh, uh, But there is this alarm. And even this week, even this week, the Premier of Tasmania said if she opened up the borders, they would have 2,000 deaths a, a month in, uh, in, uh, in Queensland, which is quite incredible because at a, a fatality rate of 0.5%, that means they'd have to have 400,000 cases a month. 7% of the Queensland population would be infected by COVID every month simply if you allowed a three-year-old boy back in to see his mother. Um, It's simply preposterous. You'd only have to do some very basic thinking about it and realise it's not going to pass the pub test. But um, well, can I can I just say on that though, with those early estimates on viruses, deaths, and whatnot. If you look at what has happened in 85 countries around the world, the death rate in terms of the entire population of those countries, COVID has taken out about 0.2 to 0.3% of the population. So the death rate's got to be higher than that. And that would mean in Australia about 50,000 deaths. So we avoided a lot by closing our borders. And the odd thing is a lot of people don't seem to want to talk about borders, but it was, I think, by far and away the most successful thing we did. And I'd like to talk about it more because, you know, President Z has got another 1,600 bat viruses hidden away in Wuhan. So I would think that having a pandemic plan for the next one, which involved shutting the borders and keeping potential Chinese bioweapons in China ought to be top of the list in terms of just minimising all of this chaos we've had in the last two years. It could have been avoided had we, the, the world just said no thanks back in late January last year and just said we're not going to take flights from China. As you'll remember, Joe, uh, when, uh, when this did begin in January two, 2020, um, we had the World Health Organisation, mm-hmm. um, you know, very obediently repeating China's lies about there's no way this is a uh, transmissible human to human. And there's no reason at all. In fact, it would be quite, quite racist to block the travel of Chinese uh, nationals to Western countries. So thanks a lot, World Health Organization. 10 out of 10. 
And exactly. And on my blog, I think on February 3 last year, I pointed out that Tedros Adamenos, and I may have dismembered that second name, the uh, head of the WHO organisation was saying exactly what you just said and that he also, most people don't know, was foreign minister of Ethiopia from about 2012 to 2016 or something. And I think that was the same time that Ethiopia accumulated $13 billion in Belt and Road debt to China. And there are plenty of photos of Tedros shaking President Z's hand. Clearly, Ethiopia cannot pay that money back. And why would we and our our chief medical officer endorse that opinion and said, this is what the WHO says, and we should keep the flights open because because we need Chinese bioweapons to get free entry? Um, He was saying that and endorsing those opinions. And I just couldn't believe that Australia was putting its health policy in the hands of someone who clearly had a conflict of interest. Just a little bit. But we're not just we're not just putting our future in their hands. We're putting fifty million dollars a year into their hands. And why? And why? Uh, yes, uh, cancel all funds to the UN. I think until the UN starts acting on behalf of our interests, why are we funding it? Joe, the international planet on climate. <laughs> the international planet on climate change. Yes. The international panel on climate change sixth assessment reviews just out, as you know, three thousand. 949 pages, Mm. that's three times more pages than War and Peace and and a plot that's somewhat harder to follow. Uh, Can you just summarise that for us in a few words, please? What is in the report? 3,900 pages and all those references and there is one sole mention of the phrase solar magnetic. There are zero mentions of the word solar wind uh, or the solar spectrum uh, it basically is a very distilled uh, set of the same, the same, the same, all the permitted studies and none of the ones that disagree. And as always, it's as if the sun was just a ball of light and ignore the fact that it's a giant dynamo electromagnet that sends magnetic and charged particles past the earth because we know they have no effect on our climate. We know that because the climate models tell us they have zero effects because they don't include them at all. You know, it's just extraordinary. It's like the sun barely exists. It's just like a torch. So, uh, yeah, and it's just this is just a repeat of all the other ones they've done. It says the same things. The hockey stick is still, uh, I think, the first graph in the thing, the hockey stick, the discredited hockey stick that we've known for 20 years is based on junk science, bad tree rings and extraordinary stuff, and they've reinstated it. It wipes out the medieval warm period, something known for decades, uh, which is shown by hundreds, if not thousands, of, of studies and different proxies. You have to use a particular kind of tree in a certain location in order to prove that the medieval warm period never happened. And they do that. Uh, they turn their graphs upside down. It's just, it really is extraordinary, and they're getting away with it. It's it's like gaslighting a nation, the world. Do, do, don't you think it's incredible that um, that um, the the you know the, the the whole the pressure to call people like us who question it uh, that we're in denial? They say we're climate denial. The real denial is 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 on their side because they refuse to look at things like the utter discreditation. Uh, of uh, of of the hockey stick, everything post man, Al Gore's position, the fact that people who are supposedly intelligent and informed refuse to look at that, 
refuse to take it on board. That's what I meant about it being an industry rather than real mm. science. It's a business. It's a business. Absolutely. Eh? You, you're quite right. And this idea that, that winter deaths are always, and in every location, even in warm Brisbane, worse than summer deaths, and yet we pretend that warm weather is going to kill more people than cold weather. Uh, you know, that's been shown over and over to be a gross um, inaccuracy. We know that mammals do better in warm weather than they do at cool weather, that winter deaths exceed summer deaths by a huge amount. It's it's kind of nuts to, and by the way, and viruses, of course, are much happier in cold weather than they are in hot weather. So uh, you know, it's the opposite. Bacteria prefer the warmth, but viruses, wow. You know, I, I used to work in a, a medical lab for a short time. If we wanted to preserve a virus, we would put it in a minus 70 freezer. The colder, the better. And you could dig that virus out later and it would be good to go. So, yes, it's this crazy idea that we would not want to live in a, war- a slightly warmer world than what we've got and that, yeah, it... Well, that's uh, warm weather is... Um why we have uh, Julia Gillard here, because her parents, she was a, a sickly child. Her parents moved to a warmer climate, came to Australia, where she began, you know, as a politician, complaining about warm weather. So, you know, work that out. But um, oh, And Tim, and then there's all those people who retire to Antarctica, because, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, all, all the um, the grey nomads on uh, on snowmobiles. We, um, as an elderly, <laughs> be, being, being far older than you, Joe, being an elderly man, I remember bumper stickers in the 70s that said uh, solar, not nuclear. And even then, I kind of thought, solar is nuclear. Like, these guys really aren't, you know, too much on the ball if they're making that a binary split, are they? Uh, Just more misinformation and the idea that solar is free energy because the fuel is free. But what isn't free is the storage, the stability, all of the uh, heavy metals, the um, manufacture, the transport. And, you know, there's so many things about solar that's not free. And yet they're trying to sell us on this idea that fuel is free. And when you look at the whole idea of collecting uh, energy from very low energy density sources, which is wind and solar, the costs of collecting that energy are enormous and we need to virtually duplicate our entire infrastructure. So you've got to have two copies of everything because solar and wind can only about 1% of it can be relied on to do anything at any one time and for solar, of course, every night it's 0%. And so we sort of have to build two whole grids and we think that's going to be cheaper than having one grid. I, you know, do we people think this backup system comes for free because two generations of Australians paid it off and all the land, the mortgages, the bills, the electricity, the labour wages, the insurance and everything is not going to be more expensive with two entire energy systems than one? Every alternative energy dream has massive flaws in it. You've just pointed out several with solar. Wind obviously is an issue because if it don't blow, your car don't go. And... Hydrogen is fascinating to me because you have a lot of advocates of hydrogen who I don't think have worked out yet that to create hydrogen under current methods, you have to use a lot more oil to create a certain amount of energy than you would get from that same amount of oil if you just derive the energy directly from that. So it's kind of pointless. Yes. And you know, on a smaller scale, good old pumped hydro is just the same. 
you have to put in 20 to 30 percent more energy than you get out of pumped hydro it's not a generator it's a net suck it's absorbing energy so again the same thing we need to burn more coal in order to have pumped hydro uh unless you've got enough wind and solar pushing in but we all know the cheapest energy of the day is going to be coal burning at 3 a.m which is when the pumped hydro managers are going to go hmm should we use that cheap energy and just pull that through (laughs) or are we going to take the more expensive energy during the day well you know of course they're going to use the cheap coal to pump that water upstream so again more madness it's not even going to reduce emissions very much not that that matters well, Joe, we could go on talking to you forever, but of course there is, a, I think, a time limit on how long we're allowed to talk to people in Western Australia under Mr McGowan's uh, quarantine rules, so we better uh, draw it a close to that and get back here huddled together with our masks on. Joe, thank you very much for joining the inaugural Chop Shop uh, podcast, and we hope to see you back again soon. We'd love to speak too. Thank you. Joe's a surprise package, isn't she? A strange mixer, I thought, towards the end of the climate sceptic and the COVID alarmist. But anyway, we may come back to Joe and get her thoughts on COVID next time. We're almost at the end of this this podcast. Can I I mention my... my, my... You can, yeah. It is just to me say that that, uh, uh, if we had more money to run this podcast, I would pay the enormous royalty fee necessary in order to play a track from a, a an old Swedish pop group. But I don't, so you better just sing it anyway. Well, all right. Now, all I was going to say was, um, in, in, your, in, in the email you sent us suggesting things we might talk about, you said, you know, maybe we talk about, who, you know, given his appalling, his appalling performance in, in Kabul, you know, who, who would replace Biden? And I was thinking, I happened to read the thing about ABBA, the group, has now announced that they're going to get back together, they're going to release a new album. Everyone loves that. But they're also going to do a, a, a performance, a concert, where they won't physically be there. There'll be 10,000 people in an arena watching it. But on the stage, there will be an, an there'll be avatars of the four of them as they were in their 20s, even though the other ones will be playing really off stage. But, but the, they'll be reproduced in 3D digital format on the stage. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Actually, the technology has been around for a while. Cast your minds back about you know, eight or nine years, the same technology was used to do videos that went viral where, uh, uh, where um, President Obama appeared to do videos endorsing Donald Trump for the 2016 election. And it turned out that they constructed this avatar and so my, my, my answer to the question is, who would replace Biden? Um, the um, Democrats must be worrying what to do. Why not, rather than actually find a new candidate, get a dead one, reanimate them. And I was thinking, if, if I was working for the GOP, for example, for the upcoming you know, primaries in 2000, what is it, um, year after next, forget Trump. Forget Trump. Bring back Ronald Reagan. Let's have a three-dimensional, three-dimensional, uh, uh, and, and not as not as he was when he was in office. Let's get the thirty-five-year-old uh, ex-Hollywood governor of California, Ronald Reagan, but talking like Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that. You know, the, the the Reagan as Trump. You know, Mr. Gorbachev put up this wall to Mexico. That's right. That's right. 
That's exactly right. Put up this wall. Uh, listen, guys, it's been, it's been, well, I've enjoyed the first podcast. I reckon, um, I predict that in years to come, generations of people will be saying to one another, I remember the first time I heard the Chop Shop podcast and it's stuck with me ever since. What do you think? Um, but should we do it again next week? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I suspect we'll still be paying this this tune, which um, uh, is a considerable bargain compared to what you have to pay to play Abbott. Eight eight dollars, and I can play it endlessly. I like I like I like that music. I think it's great. And if you want, if you want, uh, I won't say by next week, but at some point, I know it's only thirty seconds long, but I can write lyrics to it. Oh, brilliant! Let's do that. There's something to get people tuning in again next week to the Chop Shop podcast and I, I think in the meantime we might come try and come up with an email address which I'll put in the notes under this so that you can tell us uh, how badly we did but anyway it's been a joy thanks Tim thanks Simon and uh, thanks Joe of course and thanks to anybody who cared to listen to this and I hope you'll be back again next week for another what do we call it? Chop Shop <laughs> another Chop Shop podcast <laughs>